Please be seated. Would you pray with me as we begin? Heavenly Father, we ask that you would open our hearts, allow us to hear what you have to say. Lord, as we talk about revival this morning, we ask that you would revive us. Touch our hearts and our minds. Start a fire there. Make it burn hot and bright. Allow us to draw much, much closer to you. We pray for the power of the Holy Spirit to move through us and in us, to change us, to make us ready for you. We pray in Jesus' holy name. Amen. Well, talk about revival this morning. That's a loaded word. It's a word that kind of means something to everybody. Uh, revival is a word that, you know, if you go to an accident scene and somebody has a, uh, an accident or in a hospital setting and, and, and somebody goes into cardiac arrest and, and maybe their heart stops. That's what cardiac arrest is, isn't it? <laughs> and it becomes necessary to restart their heart with a defibrillator, kind of like the one we just bought going to be hanging on the wall out in the lobby here pretty soon for emergencies. A stopped heart is one of the classical definitions of death. And restarting the heart, what's the expression we use? We say that we are bringing that person back to life or we are reviving them, right? We use that expression. Sometimes in an evangelistic service uh, with a call to repentance and salvation or recommitment, uh, we call that a revival meeting. We might think of the old-style camp meeting with an altar call and people praying at the altar rail for salvation or renewal, and we call that a revival meeting because it's designed to revive, to breathe new life into the church. Now, on the other hand, waking up every morning, that's a kind of revival, isn't it? You know, and it has its whole own set of new beginnings that are a part of that. God forgive, but if you should ever see me getting up in the morning, you'd think you were seeing the dead rising. Now that's revival. In God's church, we know that spiritual revival is, is more than these things. It's, it's more than a special service. It's more than a camp meeting. It's a special move of God's Holy Spirit. True revival is the movement of God's Spirit among his people and, and returning us to a vigorous spiritual life, revival, bringing back from the dead, to bring someone back to life. True revival is the work of the Holy Spirit in the individual believer. Revival happens among God's people. There are lots of words that we can use to describe what happens in the general population of those who don't believe, but revival is exclusive to the Christian church. And Along with revival, we often see people who are not Christians coming to faith in Jesus. And sometimes, you know, when it's a great revival, sometimes in great numbers, right? Right now, the hearts of a lot of pastors and church leaders across this country seem to be turning to God in a renewed way. Many of us have come to believe that God is beginning and maybe has already begun a revival in the churches in this country. In fact, it seems like, you know, as we listen to God, as we wait on God, it just feels like that's beginning to happen here, too. You can sense it, and 
Several of you have actually come and talked to me about it and told me how you feel and what you're sensing from God. We also, in times of revival, have to be on our guard. That's because when God moves, Satan disrupts as best as he possibly can. He can't stand it, so he likes to kick at the door when that happens. I'll tell you, many church leaders also seem to be rediscovering their first love in Jesus. And because of that, they're being renewed in power and in a powerful love, a, a God-given love. I saw it at the General Assembly I attended this year in Kansas. Uh, I've seen it in local pastors' meetings in the last few weeks as I've been sharing with some fellow pastors. Is there a need for revival in this country? What do you think? It's become very dark in a lot of places. Uh, some places where there used to be a lot of light. Now, I'm going to ask you a question. Whose fault is that? Is it the media? Is it the politicians? Or is it the churches? Because the churches are placed in, by God into their various community settings to provide salt and light. And if we have ceased to be salt and light, the world suddenly gets very dark. Because we're not there. We're not, we're not shining. The church of God needs revival. There's no question about it. But I'm also saying that, that America needs God's people to have a revival. If the church wakes up, the country gets shaken. It's inevitable. It's a chain reaction. I believe that a lot of hearts have turned to stone. And they need to be replaced with warm hearts of flesh and blood, which beat with the power of the Holy Spirit and in obedience to God. Amen? Then, and only then, the salt will add flavor, the light will shine, the darkness will recede. History has shown that change comes in God's people before it moves outside of the church and affects the people around them. And so it has to start with us. It has to begin here. Uh, came across this quote from a fellow by the name of Richard Owen Roberts, and I like it, um, if we can get that on the screen, if it'll come up. By golly, it won't. Ah, surprise, it's working. He said, you know you're backsliding when there's no music in your soul and there's no song in your heart. It means something slipped. We're leaving something behind. You want music in your, in your heart, do you? In your soul? You want a song in your heart? That's what I want. That's what I desperately want. Personal revival is where that starts. And it starts with prayer. You need to pray for revival, especially in your own spiritual life. How will we know if revival is started? You know, we have so many false ideas about revival. We have a lot of cliche ideas about revival. And, you know, it looks like this. If this kind of song happens and this person responds in this way, and if it happens in the church and it gets to the altar rail, that's revival. But that's not revival. Revival's in here. So I want to share with you some things that you might see 
that come from here and get outwards in the church if revival is really occurring. And, uh, and we're going to be in the book of Nehemiah for the most part this morning in the Old Testament. Don't be shy. You can use the index in your Bible because it's one of those that's a little bit hard to find. But I encourage you, you might want to follow along this morning. So here are seven characteristics of genuine revival I'd like to share with you. The first thing I'd like to share is that you will renew your passion for prayer. First, and it's always first, you need to begin to renew that passion. Often God will put a burden in your heart and he'll get you praying about something very specific. You know, in the 16th and 17th centuries, in a church that was pretty dead across this nation, church leaders followed the example of the early Christians. They began to feel a need for God in a different way and they began to form these small prayer societies and by the 18th century, they were found in almost every setting, in schools and churches and colleges all over the country. These people were meeting. Literally tens of thousands of people were participating. And out of this powerful movement of prayer grew America's Great Awakening. And that lasted from 1725 through 1740, with effects passing on through the end of the century. Churches were revived. And as a result, thousands of people were saved through faith in Jesus. The church got on fire first. And then the sharing happened. Then people came to Jesus. Well, I want to take you to Nehemiah, chapter 1. And uh, we're going to be talking about, about what happened, the whole process of what happened. They were in captivity in Babylon. Uh, God's people were in captivity there. And... And Nehemiah, the prophet, ended up leading which, which, what became a revival in a major sense and began to restore the people of Israel. So let's talk about how that happened. Nehemiah, the prophet, was serving in the house of the king Artaxerxes. And he hears about the terrible condition going back in, in Jerusalem. You know, the walls are crumbling and falling down and... and uh, it's just a mess, and even wild animals are wandering in around this city, and, and uh, it doesn't look anything like what they left. And so, so he gets in his heart this enormous burden for the condition of the holy city, which is in ruins. In Nehemiah chapter 1, starting at verse 4, it says, When I heard these things, I sat down and wept. For some days I mourned and fasted and prayed before the God of heaven. And then I said, O oh Lord, God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps his covenant of love with those who love and obey his commands. Let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer your servant is praying before you day and night. For your servants, the people of Israel. The conviction came to Nehemiah's heart. And he began to pray day and night for an answer. He confessed his sin as part of that and the sins of the people. And he prayed and he prayed and he prayed and he didn't stop praying. And that out of the conviction of his prayer, then he went and talked to the king. Then he went and asked for something. But it started with prayer. Over in chapter 2, starting in verse 4, tells us what happened. He says, the, the king said to me, what is it that you want? Then I prayed to the God of heaven, 
And I answered the king, if it pleases the king, and if your servant has found favor in his sight, let him send me to the city in Judah where my ancestors are buried so that I can rebuild them. Now, I want you to notice something here. The, the king says, okay, what do you want? And what does he do? He stops and he prays again. <laughs> right there. And then he answers the king. He checks with God first. And then he continues. And then after prayer, he asks for this favor. And because he's been praying all this time and because he believes that God has put this burden in his heart, uh, in fact, it turns out that he has, that God grants it. And he's given permission to go back to Jerusalem and begin to rebuild it. It's interesting what happens. It's not just returning to, to Israel. He's, he's also given all kinds of things. The king gives him letters of conduct for safe travel so that when he goes through those lands that are occupied, that he'll be allowed to go back there. I mean, he's been basically a slave up until this time, right? And then he also gives him a special permission so that he can go to the king's forest and get timber so that they have wood to do the rebuilding. And so it's not just being released to go and do something. It's being given the materials to go and do it. In verse 8 of chapter 2, it says, And because the gracious hand of my God was on me, the king granted my requests. If a revival is beginning, it will begin with a great call to the, to the hearts of the spiritual leaders in the country. God will call the spiritual leaders to prayer. The heart of God will be stirred, and events will change in a way that will bring people back. If you've read Nehemiah, you know that he returned to Jerusalem, and he surveyed the walls, and he saw what a wreck they were and how much repair they needed. And he went out, and he inspired the people around to come back to God and to assist in the rebuilding and we have this great story of the rebuilding of the walls, and they all lived happily ever after, right? Well, if you know the story, that's not really the way it went. First resistance they get are there's the Samaritans, you know, those people who were in the area who had stayed there, who had not gone off into captivity, and that group, they, they uh, wanted to be part of rebuilding the wall, and Nehemiah and Ezra told them, no, you guys sold out, you guys... Stopped worshiping God. You blended other gods with that. You did other things. And so they didn't allow them to participate in building the wall. So they went out and they teamed up with the, the people of the area, the, the different peoples who were against Israel from the beginning. And they began to harass them. And they began to make fun of them. And they began to, you know, to, to just really make it difficult for them. By the time we get to chapter 4 of Nehemiah, it gets really ugly. You know, we said at the beginning, when spiritual renewal begins, Satan begins to attack. So how does Nehemiah deal with the threats? Let's take a look. In chapter 4, verse 4, we read about him praying. Hear us, O God, for we are despised. Turn their insults back on their own heads. Give them over as a plunder in the land of captivity. Do not cover up their guilt or blot out their sins from your sight. For they have thrown insults in the face of the builders. Now, he feels, and, and he's right, is that the builders are doing holy work. And so this opposition is really not just against them, but it's against God. 
And you notice what he's doing before he takes any action. He doesn't respond to their threats. He doesn't respond to their insults. He doesn't, you know, get, get a bunch of soldiers together and go out and, and attack them or, or respond in any way. First thing he does, he prays. And he asks for God's help. And it says that God strengthened him. And on the strength that God gave him, it says that the group just ignored them and they continued to rebuild the wall until it was at least half built. And all those gaps, all those holes in the wall began to fill in. Was that the end of it? Nope. <laughs> because what happened was those people who were against them became to feel, began to feel more threatened because now we have a fortification. Now the walls are being built up. And so you have the Sanballat, we have Tobiah, we have the Arabs, we have the Ammonites, the people of Ashdod. They all got together and they decided to attack and fight the Jewish nation and stir up trouble. So how did he respond to that? Did he turn and run? Did they stop rebuilding and finishing the wall? No, they did not. In chapter 4 and verse 9 it says, But we prayed to our God and posted a guard day and night to meet the threat. First they prayed. Now they're practical people. They put a guard up, yeah. But the first thing they did was they prayed. And they trusted in the strength of God to keep them going. So why am I telling you this story? Well, there's a, a principle here that we need to learn. The city of Jerusalem was broken down, but, but Jerusalem and its walls also represent the nation of Israel. And it was in a bad way spiritually too. It was full of holes and broken down from the years of captivity. So Nehemiah, with the help of Ezra, the scribe, Nehemiah not only builds the walls, but he begins rebuilding the people. Every step of the way, there was prayer. Started with that burden in Nehemiah's heart. And it resulted in the carrying out of God's will among his people. You know, if you want to see change in this country, it's not going to start with political favor. Especially if you want to see moral principles change. That's not going to happen. If you want to see a, a bright future for your children, if you want to see real change take place, then it has to start in one place and one place only, and that's with prayer. And when revival begins, your passion for prayer will come back. When revival begins, you'll feel a sense of God's calling you to pray. You say you want revival? Pray for it. Start with prayer. Number two, and I promise you the rest of these are shorter. The second sign of revival is that you will begin to experience unity in Christ. In Nehemiah, at the end of chapter 7 and the start of chapter 8, it says, When the seventh month came and the Israelites settled in their towns, all the people came together as one in the square before the water gate. And they told Ezra, the leader, the teacher of the law, to bring out the book of the law of Moses which the Lord had commanded for Israel. Now, when it says assembled as one man, it's a euphemism. What it means is that they were unified. They were all together. They were there for the same reason with one heart and one focus. Their focus was on God when they came together. 
When revival begins, you start to see those petty little issues fall away. All those little things that really aren't of any importance that we use to divide ourselves from one another. And we will begin to focus intensely on God himself. You'll see prayer begin to cross denominational barriers. You'll see cooperation among Christians to do the things that God has called us to do. Before every revival, this kind of unity begins to occur. You see the people getting out of their own boxes and crossing over and sharing together. The pride that divides us gets set aside. Well, it says here they gather together to hear God's voice, and that leads us to the third thing that characterizes revival, and that is that we begin to value God's word again. Maybe in a different way. We value God's word, but, but in a more intense way, in a way that it really begins to mean something very central to our lives. You know, these people didn't unite so they could sit there and sing Kumbaya by the wall, so they could have these useless conversations like, did you notice the weather over by the wall we built? You know? They got together for something deeper, something more important. They got together around God's word. You know, in captivity, they'd forgotten the word. They didn't even know where it was. <laughs> and somebody went in a temple in the back, and they went, oh, what's this book? <laughs> what are these scrolls? Oh, that, I remember this. Didn't we study this when we were little? <laughs> And they began to remember about the word of God. And when they realized what it was, the king said, you know, this, this needs to be read. And, and Ezra, I mean, his job centers around the word of God. He brings it out and he reads it and he explains it to all those people who are gathered together. When revival begins, people will begin to value God's word in a new way. You know, when revival swept the country in the 1700s, not only did prayer societies grow up, but also these study groups that they called conventicles. And they were non-denominational. They were multi-denominational. And they, they were there to, to learn more about God's word and what it really said, because up until that point, mostly it had been taught to them. But they weren't really reading it and studying it themselves. And as they began to study God's word, they began to be changed. And it is how many churches, including ours in the late 1780s or the late 1700s, how these churches were born. You want revival? You need to take the word of God seriously. That's part of it. Well, the fourth thing is we invite godly worship. In Nehemiah 8 and verse 6, in response to reading God's word, it says, Ezra praised the Lord, the great God, and all the people lifted their hands and responded, Amen, Amen. And then it says, They bowed down and worshiped the Lord with their faces to the ground. That's Hebrew code, for they got real serious with God. This is, when, that's, when you see this written, it is the most intense way that someone can worship in the Old Testament. They're real serious. When revival comes, so does godly worship. We'll look for it. We'll long for it. 
We'll want to worship God more often and deeper. We'll get real serious. It, it stops being about the style of the music, and it stops being about whether your favorite song gets sung. Our hearts get pointed at God, and we worship him deeply together. That's a mark of revival. And that's not something that happens because the band is playing loud or whatever. It's something that happens because your heart is now ready to hear from God and follow Jesus more fully. Remember what Jesus said to the woman in the well back in John chapter 4? You know, he's talking to her and they're talking about worship and do I worship on this mountain or that mountain? And Jesus said, yet a time is coming and has now come when the true worshipers of God will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For they are the kind of worshiper that God seeks. God wants worshipers who don't just show up on Sunday and warm a pew and go through the motions. He wants worshipers who engage with him, who truly worship him. You know, when revival comes, we will hardly be able to wait to worship God. We won't show up at the last possible minute and put in the least possible energy. We'll desire to worship God with all we've got, body and soul. When revival comes, we will worship. Number five, when revival comes, there will be a conviction of sin. Back at the beginning of the story, God placed a burden in Nehemiah's heart, and when he began to pray, it says he wept and mourned and fasted. He says, I confess the sins we Israelites, including myself and my father's house, have committed against you. We have acted very wickedly towards you. We have not obeyed the commands. Decrease. And the laws that you gave your servant Moses. When revival began in Nehemiah, his spirit was convicted. He was convicted of the sin in his heart. And he recognized the same sin in his own people all around. And this is one of those examples of times when, when someone confesses the sins of a whole group. And the same thing happens to the people in general after Ezra reads the law to them. He brings the word of God to them and, and they began to feel what he felt right in the beginning. It says that the people were weeping so hard that Nehemiah and Ezra and the Levites all had to say to them, this day is holy to the Lord your God. Do not mourn or weep. For all the people had been weeping as they listened to the word of God. And as they heard God's word, they wept out of that deep conviction in their hearts that they had sinned against God by disobedience to his commands. Well, we got two more here. This one's pretty cool. Number six, we will have great inner joy. Nehemiah said to the whole group of people, do not grieve, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. How many times have you sung that in a chorus and not known where that came from? That came from the revival of God's people, the renewal of God's people after they were in captivity. And then the people went off, it says, to eat and drink and celebrate with great joy because now they understand the words that had been made known to them. They understand the word of God. 
and with confession and repentance before God, we know comes forgiveness, right? The people began to rejoice for this reason. They understood God's word. They really understood. Maybe for the first time in their lives, they understood God's word. And they knew what it meant, what it was supposed to lead to. When revival comes, we will receive inner joy. I need all of that I can get. And finally, when a revival comes, we will live in biblical obedience. Uh, in, in Nehemiah 8, in verses 14 and 15, it, it tells us that they were looking at the law and they began to realize there were things that the, the word of God said and they weren't doing any of them. And one of the ones that immediately hit them was, was a thing called the Festival of Booths or the Festival, of, we call it the Festival of Weeks. And it's a commemorative event. It, it reminds them, they go out and they... They live in tents that they build or little hut structures that they build and they live in them for a period of days and it's to remind them about their dependence of God, on God and how God provided and how they wandered in the desert because of their disobedience to God and how God brought them back and restored them. When they saw that they hadn't been doing it, what did they do? They started doing it. They started living out the word of God. It's not enough just to read the Bible. We have to put it into practice. As James says, we, we can't just be hearers of the word. We have to be doers of the word of God. When revival strikes our hearts for real, our greatest desire will be to do what God asks of us to the very best of our ability. We won't be messing around anymore. We won't be picking and choosing in the scriptures. When we read it, we'll obey it. We talk about rival, revival from a distance, like it's some mystical mystery that you know, we're even maybe a little scared of, you know, because if real revival happens, I might have to change the way I am and do things different and think things different, have a different attitude. Maybe it's something we're not sure about. Here in Scripture, in the, in the story of Nehemiah, it's pretty clear that, that there are characteristics that we can recognize, and they're desirable. A passion for prayer will be renewed. We'll experience unity in Christ. We'll put a high value on God's Word. We'll invite godly worship. We'll have a deep conviction of sin in our lives, leading to repentance. And we will receive an intense inner joy that will intensify as we live in obedience for Christ. Are we there yet? Maybe not. But if we start to pray, Heavenly Father, we understand that revival is not about us, but about you. Give us discernment to see what you are doing and help us to join in. Draw us to yourself in deep surrender. Draw us deeper into worship and into your word. Do so through your Holy Spirit. Guide us into fuller fellowship. And Lord, let us experience the joy of knowing you fully and forever. 
In Jesus' holy name we pray. Amen.